Well, good morning again. Would you bow with me and let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you once more that it is living and active, that it is for us today, and that you want to speak to us. And so we welcome your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, as well, that you would shine the light on each one of our hearts to uh, bring uh, your correction where it's needed and also to bring uh, direction to where you would have us to take steps of obedience as we respond to your word this morning. And so I ask that you would do this, Lord. I ask that you would speak through me, your servant, and that the words would be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we are continuing in our sermon series on the book of Romans. And today we are in our third installment, part three, entitled Passing Judgment on Yourself. Now, I've shared the story once before of a small-town trial where the prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand. The witness was a proper, well-dressed sort of elderly lady, and she carried herself somewhat with, you might say, a nose-in-the-air attitude. Well, as she walked quite pompously up to the stand, she sat down and was sworn in. The prosecuting attorney wanted to establish the relationship, and so he asked his first question. Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why? Yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. In fact, I've known you since you were a little boy, and to be quite frank, you've been quite a disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat, you've, uh, you've been unfaithful to your wife, you manipulate people, you talk badly about them behind their backs, and on and on she went until finally she stopped. Yes, Mr. Williams, I know you. Well, a shocked silence filled the courtroom as the now stunned attorney slowly backed away at a complete loss for words. Finally, not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and asked, Well, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? Again, she replied, Why, yes. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and has a bad drinking problem. Not to mention he's cheated on his wife with three different women. Yes, I know him. Well, now, audible gasps are going out throughout the courtroom. Laughter is rippling through. The judge realizes that he's losing control of the situation. He begins to pound his gavel, calling for order in the court. He sternly tells both attorneys to approach the bench. They do. Knees trembling. The judge then leaned towards them and in a fierce whisper threatened, I will jail you for contempt if either of you ask Mrs. Jones if she knows me. (laughs) Now, in today's text in Romans chapter 2, we are going to be looking at passing judgment on others and thereby on ourselves. Now, we must admit that it is... Not hard, not hard at all for us to pass snap judgments on others. In fact, just like Mrs. Jones, we often relish the opportunity to do so, maybe not quite as much as she did. Now, in last week's sermon on Romans chapter 1, and there we looked at verses 18 to 32, Paul was primarily describing the pattern of the pagan Gentiles who engaged in all of those sinful and and, uh, depraved behaviors that he described, that led to God's wrath finally being revealed as he gave them over to a depraved mind. 
thereby allowing them to continue to dive headlong without restraint, without any correction, into their own destruction. However, the young church in Rome at that time was still made up mostly of Jewish converts to Christianity. And so there, the, the background, even though they're living in a Gentile city of Rome, the early church in Rome was still primarily of a Jewish heritage. And so those mostly Jewish believers first assembled to hear Paul's words. I can imagine them hearing this, this passage in verses 18 to 32 where Paul's describing those depraved pagan Gentiles receiving God's wrath. And I can imagine them letting out a hearty, Amen. I mean, they're getting what they deserve, right? It's easy to say amen to when others are getting what they deserve. I mean, who doesn't desire to see the wicked receive justice? It's why we have sayings like, well, you got what you deserved. But even as the Jewish believers still were nodding in agreement as they heard Paul's words in chapter 1, Paul quickly turned the tables on them. And I want you to take note, that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul speaks of them, their, and they. He's talking about outsiders, people not inside the church. He's talking about them. But now in Romans chapter 2, listen to the shift in tone from talking about them and they to you. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse... You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, did you notice the word you just jumping out? Because in this one verse, Paul uses that word you five times. Five times. He he shifts from them to you. The spotlight of truth has shifted from the pagan Gentiles and is now being aimed squarely at those Jewish believers. So in Paul's words, if you listen to them carefully, we hear very strongly the echo of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And there in verses 1 to 2, Jesus said, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And so here we see a very strong parallel. Jesus also using that word you. He's speaking to his audience directly. Don't think about someone else. Think about yourself. Do not judge or you too will be judged. And this leads into the first point of today's sermon. Number one, what we can take from this text quite strongly is this. We are quick to judge the sins of others. But we tend to have a blind spot when it comes to our own sins. So we are quick to point out and judge the sins of others, but we tend to have a blind spot when it comes to our own. You see, we tend to categorize sins into two very broad categories. There's my sin, and then there's your sin. And my sin, well, you know, it's my sin. It's not so bad, but your sin, your sin's a whole different ballgame, right? That's how we tend to categorize sin. 
You see, in our opening story, Mrs. Jones appeared to be on the moral high ground by airing all of the dirty laundry of those two attorneys. But in reality, by passing judgment on them, she was also passing judgment on herself. Because just like those two attorneys, and even the judge, Mrs. Jones undoubtedly had her own secret sins as well. Of course, they would not have been as overt, but pride, arrogance, gossip, vindictiveness, and having a judgmental spirit are all sins just as well as the more obvious outward ones. And on this point, jumping ahead in the text to Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul refers to the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. And so he's wrapping up this section by pointing out that, yes, it's very easy to judge those external overt sins of the pagans. It's really easy to say amen to their judgment. But the secret sins, the ones of the heart, the ones that are so easily hidden under, under the guise of something else. And so these ones, in the eyes of God, will also be revealed. And so no matter how successful Mrs. Jones or the Jewish Christians thought they were at hiding their, their secret sins from others, the fact is there is no hiding them from God. One of the best examples of this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. There in 2 Samuel 12, you will recognize the story. It's the prophet Nathan. And he goes to confront King David about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the following sin of murdering her husband Uriah. Now, Nathan, of course, very wisely and cleverly, he disarms David's defenses by first describing to him something that he didn't think applied to him. He goes in and describes to him how a certain rich man with many sheep and many flocks, took a poor man's one and only lamb and killed it in order to prepare a meal for his guests. And when David hears this story of great injustice, his anger is kindled and he declares that this rich man, he deserves to die. And then Nathan famously turns to David and he points the finger and he says, You are the man. You are the man. And you see, even David described as a man after God's own heart, had a tremendous blind spot to his own sin. And while he was quick to condemn another man, even to death, who had committed a relatively lesser crime than what he had done, he didn't realize that in saying that man deserves to die, he was actually pronouncing judgment upon himself. David, you are the man. You deserve to die. Now, sadly, focusing on other sins while turning a blind eye to our own is not unique to David or to the Jewish believers in Rome. Stemming from the fallen nature of the sinful flesh, we are all prone to it. And that is why our Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and others addressed this very subject throughout the Bible. And now here I'll just throw in one small caveat. If you have never ever focused on someone else's sins while ignoring uh, or hiding your own sins, if you've never ever done that, then I'll just throw in the caveat that this sermon is not for you, okay? So feel free to continue to not apply it to yourself and only think of others around you who need to apply this lesson, all right? That's my caveat. However, for the rest of us, myself included, 
I encourage you to stop thinking about how this message really applies to so-and-so and start thinking about how this message applies to you. For if we listen with the attitude that only everyone else needs to hear this message, but I'm good, I never do this, then we are in fact guilty of doing the exact thing that Paul is addressing. Now let's continue on to our second point. When we judge others, we are left with no excuse before God. When we judge others, we are left with no excuse before God. Romans 2 verse 1, let's read it again. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Now here Paul is picking up on the idea that he first introduced back in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Because there he stated that God was so clearly revealed through his creation that it left the pagan Gentiles without excuse. So if those Jewish believers agreed with Paul that even the pagans had no excuse for their sin because of God's general revelation of himself through creation, then what possible excuse could they as Jews have for their own sins? After all, they had the benefit of the scriptures of the day. They had the Torah, the law of Moses. They had more direct revelation from God as a people than all the other peoples of the earth combined. They knew far more about God than the pagans. And yet, as Paul points out, you still commit the same sins. Of course, they're not committing the same sins as overtly. But just like Mrs. Jones... They learned how to hide them and keep them secret from others. It's why Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount illuminated the heart behind the sin. Yes, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. You say, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you have ever harbored hate towards a brother, you are guilty of murder. And so we see the heart of the matter. You commit the same sins. Yes, you can hide them because they're within often But it's still the same, so you are without excuse. It's the very thing that Jesus continually, continually called out the Pharisees for. He said to them things like, You are whitewashed tombs, squeaky clean on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. And the Apostle Paul, having once been a hypocritical Pharisee himself, remember, that was his trade. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he described himself. And so he knew exactly what he was writing about. He had lived it. He had been the embodiment of that very hypocritical Pharisee that Jesus railed against. And so he knew from personal experience just how prevalent this judgmental attitude still was within his fellow Jewish believers. And so in modern day application for us, if we also agree, and we listen to last Sunday's sermon, And we listen along and we nod along and we agree that the non-believing world is without excuse before God, then how much more aren't those of us who have been raised in the church without excuse? Quite simply, there is no excuse. Not one. Not one excuse will hold up before the Lord, he who knows the secret thoughts hidden deep within a man's heart. Not one will hold up. We are all Jew and Gentile without excuse. Now let's return to our text. Romans chapter 2 and verses 2 to 3. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. 
So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now this leads into our third point. God's judgments are always, always perfect. Ours are not. God's judgments are perfect. Ours are not. So in saying in this verse, look back at it, that God's judgment is based on truth, Paul is teaching that God has perfect knowledge not only of the sin, but also of the attitude of the heart and the very motives behind it. God has the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We don't. So while we tend to think that we're so smart, and, and I sometimes think like, oh, I know exactly what's going on here. I know exactly what that person did. I know why they did it. And I just, you know, I just know it. I'm so smart. But the fact of the matter is, we rarely, if ever, know the whole story. And even if we do know the facts, we don't know the attitude of someone's heart or the true motives behind their actions. And so therefore, Paul is saying, you, a mere human being, when we make judgments of others, they are always going to be flawed and imperfect. God's judgments are based on perfect truth and knowledge. Ours are not. Just to give you a small example of this, in our Canadian legal system, I looked this up, and any given calendar year here in Canada, in our legal system, there are on average, this is just an average, 872 wrongful convictions every year. 872 wrongful convictions that are like overturned at some point on average in our Canadian legal system. So I will say, of course, any nation needs law and order. We need a legal system to maintain that law and order. However, what this goes to show is that even with the very best of legal systems, even with the very best of judges, with the very best of attorneys, with the very best of jurors, there will inevitably be times where someone who is innocent gets convicted and also times where someone who is guilty does not. And why is that? Because they never have the whole truth or perfect knowledge of what has transpired. Only God does. And not only are our judgments often just a little bit off, if we're perfectly honest, often our judgments are entirely off. We are in the exact opposite direction of where the truth actually lies. Sometimes we're just flat out wrong. There's a true story told of an elementary school teacher named Dodie Gadient. And Dodie had decided that she was going to take the summer holidays to travel around America to see the sights that she had so often taught her students about. And so traveling alone in her pickup truck, towing her camper trailer, she launched out. And one afternoon, as she rounded a curve on the I-5 near Sacramento during rush hour traffic, the water pump blew on her truck. Steam went up. She pulled over to the side of the road and stuck there, now tired, frustrated, and alone. This is in the time before cell phones. And so without one, and she waved to the traffic, but no one stopped, and she just was frustrated. It was, it was nearing the end of the day. She'd been on the road for hours. She didn't know what to do. And finally, she leaned up against her camper and just prayed, please, God, just send me an angel, preferably one with mechanical experience. Well, she had hardly said amen when she heard the rumble of a Harley Davidson motorcycle ridden by an enormous man sporting 
long black hair, a beard, tattooed arms, and a vest that read the notorious Hell's Angels. Well, he pulled in directly behind her trailer, and she, completely terrified that she was about to get robbed or worse, she dashed into her truck and locked the doors. But then the massive biker, hardly glancing her way, proceeded to get to work under the hood of her truck. And within minutes, he'd flagged down another truck, a larger one, which attached a tow chain to the frame of her disabled Chevy. It whisked the whole rig to a quieter side street where he continued to work on her water pump. After he had finished the task sometime later, he slammed the hood closed as he walked by back towards his bike. The scared schoolteacher finally mustered up the courage to roll down her window, just a little crack, and she whispered a quiet, thank you very much. The giant biker, he paused. He turned and looked her dead in the eyes through the window and said to her, don't judge a book by its cover. You may not know who you're talking to. And with that, he just smiled. He hopped back on his Harley and with a roar, rumbled away, lost in the traffic almost as fast as he had appeared. Now, just like that scared school teacher. How often don't we see people or situations and make snap judgments based solely on what we can see in that one moment, limited by external appearances or, or even just you know, other factors that we don't know the whole story of, but it just turns out in the end we are not just a little bit off, we are dead wrong. You see, only God's judgments are perfect, ours are not, and we need to remember that. And so now we move on to the key verse, I believe, the key verse, the linchpin verse of this passage. It's Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Paul asks, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So now this leads into our fourth and final point. When we pass judgment on others, we are actually showing contempt for God's patient kindness and storing up his wrath against ourselves. These are not light words. These are not easy words. These are hard words. And Paul is not pulling any punches. I mean, he is right in their faces, with, with what he is saying here. And he's in our faces by extension. You see, all too often, just like the psalmist, we will look out at our world and we will wonder, why do the wicked prosper? And then we turn to the Lord and we ask him, oh Lord, why aren't you doing something about them? Why aren't you smiting the wicked? Why aren't you giving those wicked, depraved people the justice that they deserve? And here is the answer in God's own words to Moses back in Exodus chapter 34 where he reveals who he is and he says the Lord the Lord compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So here we see God revealing his core character of who he is. He is patient, 
He is compassionate and he is gracious. He is slow to anger and he desires nothing more than to give the wicked and the rebellious and even the depraved every possible chance to repent so that he can forgive them and show them his kindness rather than his wrath. You see, God does not desire that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. God does not desire to show the world wrath. He desires to show us mercy. And so when we say, well, Lord, you're taking your time, those people deserve wrath, give it to them. We must realize something very important, that we too deserve wrath. We too deserve judgment. And of course, God says at the end, if people will continue to not repent, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That day will come. The final day of God's wrath, when Jesus returns and the wicked are wiped out and Satan is defeated once and for all and cast into the lake of fire, that day will come. But until that day, God is long-suffering. He is patient. And it is his kindness, not his wrath, that leads us to repentance. You see, we want God to just stop the wicked right now. But God is not like us. God says, I am giving them my kindness by extending the opportunity for them to repent. Someone who struggled mightily with this exact thing. With, in fact, he would, I would say, be a perfect example of someone who showed contempt for God's patience and kindness was actually a prophet. You know him well. His name's Jonah. You see, Jonah, he hated He absolutely hated the people of Nineveh. They were his enemies, and for good reason. He wanted them to be destroyed. He wanted fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah to turn them into a puddle. That's what Jonah wanted. Remember, this is a prophet of God. In fact, he wanted it so bad that rather than going and preaching to them, he gets on a boat and goes the other way. You know the big fish story. God says, not so fast. I got a job for you to do, and you're going to do it. And so finally, here we see Jonah, this this very begrudging sort of a prophet, finally shows up at Nineveh, and he preaches, you know, and he doesn't do it graciously, I don't suspect. He preached fire and brimstone, the wrath of God is coming, and you're going to get it, and you deserve it. Maybe he didn't say that out loud, but that's what he's thinking. Because we see in the aftermath, after he's preached, he goes up on a hill to watch the destruction, and he hopes it's coming. He wants it to come. But God desired to show the people of Nineveh his kindness rather than his wrath. And so after Jonah is sitting up on that hill like a petulant child, he finally sees that God's not going to destroy them. They are repenting in sackcloth and ashes, and he's upset with God. He even accused God essentially of being too soft, saying to him, I knew that you are a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Oh God, who relents from sending calamity. And he's resentful of who God is and his character. And he finally says, so take my life. It's better that I die than live. He just couldn't handle it that God was so gracious to the enemies that he so badly wanted to see destroyed. And of course we know God confronted the self-righteous Jonah And just as Paul confronted the self-righteous Jews, God's word confronts our own self-righteous attitudes today with the question, do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness, not his wrath. 
You see, in passing judgment on the pagan Gentiles, what the Jewish believers had forgotten was that they needed God's patience and kindness to lead them into repentance just as much as the pagans did. As a result, the Jews desired for God to treat the Gentiles with justice that was not tempered with kindness, while at the same time expecting God to treat them with kindness and ignore his justice. You see, there's a double standard. And so if we're honest, we must admit that we tend to be a lot like those Jews. We have a tendency to want God to deal with others, especially those outside the body of Christ, solely on the basis of his justice. But at the same time, we want God to treat us based solely on his mercy and kindness. It's a double standard if we, if we harbor this kind of an attitude. And Paul makes it clear that God doesn't work like that. Verse 11 He sums it all up with one crisp statement. Verse 11, For God does not show favoritism. For the Jews, that's a big deal because they were God's favorites. They were God's chosen people. How much more favorite could you get? That was their thinking. It was embedded into their DNA. They believed that they had a special special edge over everyone else. They were God's favorites. But Paul throws it right in their faces and says, God does not play favorites. He does not show favoritism. He is impartial. And he wants to show his mercy and kindness to all, Jew or Gentile. And so here, of course, it hits closer to home. You know what? Mennonites were not God's favorites either. Right? It's that old game. Every kid does it with their parent. Dad, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite, Dad? Who do you like better? Me or Theo? Right? I like you all the same, kiddo. You know, we don't play that game. We don't play favorites. And for good reason. God does not play that game. God does not play favorites. And when we think he does, we are missing it. If I want God's mercy, then I'd better want God's mercy for others. Because if I want God's judgment for others and I'm wishing it upon others, I may as well be wishing it on my own head. You see, God's kindness for all and is needed by all Yours truly, you, 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 and you, all of us, we need it. No one deserves it more or less than anyone else. Bottom line, we all deserve wrath, but God desires to show kindness. And yes, there will come a day when Jesus returns to this earth, and there will be a day where all accounts are settled and justice is served. But that day has not yet come. Today is still a day of mercy where God desires to show the riches of his kindness to everyone. And so now for application, how can we guard ourselves? How can we guard our hearts from passing judgment on others? Especially in our increasingly polarized and divided world where it seems like passing judgment is not only the norm, it seems to be encouraged to just write off whole groups of people who don't believe how I believe or think like I think or, or have the opinion that I share. It's, we can't just agree to disagree. No, we must write them off, judge them, say, you're not just, you're not just mistaken, you're wrong, and I'm going to have nothing to do with you. How do we guard ourselves against falling in to that type of an attitude? Well, here's a few steps. Number one, summation of this message is this. Number one, remember that you and I need God's mercy just as much as the person or people that I want to judge. I need the mercy just as much as the person that I want to write off. Remember that. Number two, remember 
that rather than passing judgment, we should pray for that person. Rather than passing judgment, pray for that person. Remember that Jesus commanded, pray for those who persecute you. He also said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Doing this not only guards our own hearts, but when I pray for people that I'm tempted to judge or pass judgment on, I find that what it does is it actually changes my heart's attitude towards that person and towards those that I'm tempted to pass judgment on. And so pray for them. Pray God's blessing upon them. Pray that God's kindness would be shown to them and that they would turn to him because of that kindness and repentance. But also know that in doing so, our hearts, God will be working on them and our attitude towards that person or those people. Number three, cultivate God's kindness in your heart. Like a garden, cultivate God's kindness in your heart. We see this in our call to worship this morning, the attitude of the believer towards others. And right in the middle there, it says, you know, to be like God, have kindness, tender-hearted kindness and mercy. Have forgiveness as the theme of how we act towards one another, to bear with one another, even with their faults, and to forgive one another on the basis of how God has forgiven me freely, unconditionally, completely. And so we must cultivate this because it doesn't come naturally. You know what comes naturally in my garden? The weeds. The weeds come naturally. I didn't plant them there. They're just there. And they grow without me having to tend them or water them. But guess what doesn't? The vegetables. The things that we deliberately have to plant and nurture and protect. Those things, if we leave them untended, the weeds will win the day. And so just like that kindness, tender-hearted mercies, we have to tend that in our hearts. We have to guard it. We have to protect it from those bitter weeds that want to grow up, those judgmental weeds that want to snuff it out and choke it out. And so in in one of the, the greatest ways that I know to cultivate this kindness within ourselves is we must look for opportunities where we might feel justified in being harsh with someone or in passing judgment on them. We must look for those opportunities, and rather than passing judgment, let's look for a way to extend patience and kindness towards them instead. As an example of that, I'll share with you once more a story related by Jim Daly, the president of Focus on the Family. And he shares a true account of Ryan Willard and Dwayne Fields, two West Virginia law enforcement officers who responded to a typical shoplifting call. Now, according to a report from the Charleston Daily Mail, Willard and Fields arrived at the local Kmart. And they were there to look into allegations that a young woman had tried to steal shoplift from the store. And so what they found in the small back room where the stern-faced manager had corralled this young lady, they went in and they, they realized that this, what seemed to be a straightforward call, went beyond the cold, hard facts of the case. Because there they found a young, scared mom with two small daughters. And there she was, her two daughters huddled against her, clinging to each leg, and she was accused of stealing diapers diaper rash cream, and some other clothes for her young girls. She didn't take anything to benefit herself, said Officer Willard. And it turns out that this young woman was, in fact, going through a very difficult divorce, trying to make do without her soon-to-be ex-husband's help. And now the policemen, in this moment of assessing the situation, they could have thrown the book at her. They could have charged her and even arrested her. 
Had they done so, they would have been legally within their rights, just doing their jobs, because after all, stealing is still stealing, no matter the reasons. But instead, after fulfilling the duties of their job, those two officers went to the till and they paid for every last item that that mother had been accused of shoplifting. They said they just wanted to help. And Officer Fields is quoted as saying, his motivation came out of his desire to live a good Christian life and to help people in need. While that young mom, she deserved justice. She deserved judgment. But instead, she received mercy and kindness instead. And it made a tremendous impact on her life. And so, rather than passing judgment on others, and thereby upon ourselves, may we seek to demonstrate towards others the very same kindness that we ourselves have received. Amen. Heavenly Father, we recognize today that not one of us deserves the kindness of your mercy, the riches of your grace that you have so freely poured upon us. And so, Lord, as we acknowledge that fact and as your word has illuminated for us, correct us where it needs to be corrected, Lord. Guard our hearts from having judgmental attitudes towards others. Guard us from wanting to see justice or judgment or wrath poured out on those who you desire to pour out the same riches of your kindness and mercy that you have so richly poured upon me. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just adjust and tune our hearts, Lord, to be a little bit more like you from hearing your word this morning. That we would seek opportunities to show kindness rather than judgment. And so we pray, Lord, that wherever we have erred in this manner, we confess and we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that we would be more like you and that we would seek to show others your kindness and your mercy just as you have shown it to us. And so bless us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.